Hey, Andy Phillips here. And I'm Tom Hackett. You may remember us from that time when we used to try really hard to make plays on fourth down. Well, we're back at it with a brand new show called Special Forces Gang, where we give you new perspective on what it takes to be a football player. We talk all things Utah football, sports, and life. Don't miss Special Forces Gang. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on kslsports.com. Go Utes! Dave and Eugenific. On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11, for Dave and Dijanovic. So it really starts from the strategic asset allocation. So I really look at kind of how much I want in private equity, how much I want in private debt and real estate and cash. It really starts at that level. And then you break it down granularly. Um, so I'm not a lot of next gens when they or a lot of millennials when they look at um, doing an investment they pick a sector that they like I'm sector agnostic I just happen to pick food twice because those that's the one I understand the most and it's the thing I'm most passionate about but it comes down to Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Natasha Mueller, founder of NM Impact. Um, Natasha, uh, on this on this uh, half of the interview, I really want to talk about the work you're doing in impact investing and the work you're doing um, around helping next generations. You know, uh, we're family member. You know, it's a different generation that maybe made the family's fortune or started the big family business, and now it's the next generation that needs to take over. And and just the complexities and the maybe things people don't expect about the challenges of that. Um, so. If you would just give us one minute again on on your family business background, and then let's start talking about some of the things you've done and some of the things you're supporting. Yeah. So my briefly, my background is is in textiles. I'm the third generation of a um, East Asian trading company. Uh, we're based in Hong Kong and China. My grandfather set up in 1912 in Yokohama, Japan, and then kind of over the years we just narrowed it down to the textile industry and I'm the third generation. So we're in the process of selling um, naturally and uh, kind of kind of in the business cycle. Um, so I was involved since a really young age, since I was 17, because my father died by suicide. So I was kind of thrust into the family business and didn't really know China that well and didn't know much about managing my own wealth. Um, so I had to get grow up very, very quickly. And um, I forgot your question, actually. I'm really sorry I got involved no, that's in my own great. story. Well, okay. Uh, We'll we'll do sh- I'll, instead of asking combo questions, I'll shorten them up. So, you talked about you know the importing the family helped bring Puma and Rolex and these these companies you know into Japan, and then you narrowed narrowed it down to the textiles, and then at, you know at seventeen, all of a sudden you have to get much more involved. Um, can you talk? Well, let's just start there. Can you talk about um, you know maybe not not having spent years handling family wealth at that some point at that point and then being mm-hmm. thrust into it what some of those challenges looked like for you at 17 Oh yeah so that that's where we were going with this yeah so basically like when my dad died it was just before my A levels and I already had my plan you know I was going to go to uni I was going to do this that and the other and I still was able to do that but because 
we didn't really have a head of the family anymore. So my mom took over, but we inherited. So we all had a say in all of this. And with 17, I didn't have a, a, a finance background. I'd also, I had a very sheltered upbringing. I was brought up in, in Malaga in, in Spain. Um, very normal, just went to a normal school, nothing fancy. And so it was just at that point where you're kind of discovering who you are and trying to find your, your place in life. And my path, the path that I got, I'd chosen for myself, kind of got a little bit tipped around as a result of all this. And the same for my brother. And so it's difficult to, when you've had a very idyllic childhood, not really knowing much about you know, wealth management or your company, apart from what you've seen when you've gone on your, on your family trips, it, it was really, it was really difficult to know what to do. And I had really good advisors on board um, that kind of managed it for a while, for a while, but it, it's not easy because these are structures that you've been given rather than that you've created. So to have to step into that is really difficult. Plus if you're, if it's your parents or your family that have created that wealth, then it's kind of, it's awe-inspiring. It's like, I've got to live up to the reputation. Plus there's this famous book called TGK, Third Generation Kid. And in that book, they often say that it's the third generation that loses all the wealth. Yeah, yeah. Um, right? So I was like, shit, Oops, sorry. I was like, sugar, I'm third, the third generation. I don't want to be responsible for, you know, turning this upside down. Plus, I was just brought up in, in, a, in a good way, in, the, in a right way, where you, so all the values that I have came from my family. They always were very active in philanthropy. My mom um, created the Writing for Disabled Association here in Spain. She took us to the refugee centers in Hong Kong when we were living in Hong Kong after the Vietnam War. So always very philanthropic, always very involved in trying to help others. And then I kind of had this wealth to manage. And I was like, what am I going to do with it? And because it was, I never felt like it was mine, I was like, I've got to do something with it. So it was kind of this weird constellation of different feelings of like, I've got to live up to my expectations. I don't want to be the one to lose the money. Um, I still want to give back. And that's how I kind of came on to impact investing. Because um, I tried working. At- well, can, can I pause you there? Can we, because I definitely want to talk about impact investing. But um, can we go back to this idea of like, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's so much wrapped up in this idea of like, you think about the advisor. I mean, how many famous stories are there about, you know, the next generation takes over the family wealth and the advisors in the name of giving good advice are actually working very hard to make that family fortune theirs, you know? And there's, there's a lot of ulterior motives going on. And, um, then, you know, there's so often that the, the advisor is probably the age of the parent that's passed away. And so they look down on, on the inheritor as, you know, some snot nosed kid or, uneducated or not smart or, you know, like they basically look down their nose at the next generation. I mean, it sounds like you had great advisors, mm-hmm. but do I mean, there's so many complexities to potentially navigate there. And, you know, you look at the other factors of, you know, for most of us, when we went to college or when we got out of our parents' house for the first time, we did some, we did some dumb things just because we could. Right. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden now, instead of it's, you know, now when it's all of a sudden in your account where you can, you can go do some dumb things with money if you want, there's all sorts of temptations and, can, can you just talk about navigating a few of those complexities? Yes, and it's a really good point that you say that about the advisors because we did have good advisors, but very different world thinking and very different ways of doing things. So I actually, um, basically, for a, a long time after my dad died, 
we invested as a family and worked together as a family. And then we realized that it wasn't quite working. Um, and in particular for me, I, I'm a bit different from my mom and my brother, not in a bad way, just different characters. And I struggled a lot with our advisors and with the intermediaries that we had on board. And I wanted to do something very different. So I actually ended up splitting up my assets for my family when I was like 27, 28. Um, so I took my share of the inheritance and did my own thing and actually brought new advisors on board because that's exactly to your point. The, a, a lot of my advisors were from the older generation and wanted to do things in their way. And it's still an industry, right? Being an, a financial advisor, you still you still make your money from that. So they didn't want the boat to be rocked. And so I actually set up my whole own team, and now I've got really good people on board. And can I don't, you, even with the bank. No, yeah. no, go, go ahead. Finish your thought. I'm interrupting too much. Okay. No, and then even with even, – because it's not just advisors that your family have. It's also like – to be put up against banks and bank intermediaries and your advisors at the banks, you know, they've got their own agenda too. So I actually don't, you know, you have these discretionary mandates that we, that I inherited and I actually stopped all that. So I brought only managers on whose values resonated with me and who understood where I was coming from. And actually two of the organizations that I work with, um, one's called Philanthropy Impact, which is an incredible network of, um, uh, engage people who want to get more people in on the philanthropy and impact investing bandwagon. And then the other organization that I'm philanthropically supporting and working with is called the Center for Sustainable Policy uh, and Private Wealth at the University of Zurich. And that a lot of some of their work is focused on next gens and their other their other work is focused on advisors. So they do exactly that. They do these training programs for advisors and courses in teaching intermediaries and advisors about what it is that next gens want. So that is specifically why I work with those two organizations because I knew how hard it was for me to speak to my advisors without having this kind of top-down, bottom-up, hierarchical relationship, but on a more even platform and speaking on the, on the, about the same values. So that's why I work with them on the advisor yeah. side. You know, and maybe I can, maybe we can take a tangent for a second there. Looking at it from the other side here, you know, we have, we, we know that we have, a lot of uh, CEOs and founders of startups that listen to the show. Um, for folks like that who they look at somebody like you as a potential investor, right? Do you have mm -hmm. any advice for them of, hey, when you're when you're talking to the next gen, you know, the next generations, um, and you're looking for investors, if you had guidance for them on how to speak to you differently than, you know, the the first generation, you know, the person that you know, the mentality or the attitude of the folks that went out and were that crazy entrepreneur or whatever and, and built it all from scratch versus that next generation who, you know, may have a different value set or, or if you had any generalizations about, hey, if you're pitching, if you're pitching a first generation wealth builder or a next gen potential investor, any advice for the CEOs out there who would love to have somebody like you as an investor? <laughs> so it's funny you ask because I'm actually working with um, with a bunch of other next gens on creating like a white paper do's and don'ts for advisors. And it's funny because the list of don'ts is much bigger than the do's. So <laughs> of course, of see. course it is. It's, it's really but hard. Okay, yeah, let's let's do. do like, let's pick gonna, a couple. No, give no, me wait, give me a couple off the list. Some of the main do that I would say is ha start with a conversation. Find out what matters to the next gen because what next gen or millennials do. We vote, we vote, I'm sorry, we invest according to our values. So what is it that interests me? Find out what interests your next-gen clients and then try and create a, an investment around that. So, for example, last year, 
I got really sick with mercury and arsenic poison. So I'm a weightlifter and also a massive sport, uh, massive snowboarder, boxer, because that sport for me is really good. Is a really good tool to kind of reduce my energy levels and combat my mental health. And so I was just training and eating a lot of fish and this and that. I got mercury and arsenic poisoning. So I was telling my advisors last year, God, I was really sick um, because I got mercury and arsenic poisoning because even the waters are polluted. I can't believe that the fish are so bad, are, are so badly, um, so badly fed. And uh, he said to me, well, I've got an investment opportunity for you. I found a sustainable fishing farm. So I ended up inve- investing in a bona fide sustainable fishing farm. And that for me was perfect because he listened to what I was saying. He picked an investment that he knew would resonate with me. And then we went for it. So I would say it really starts with a conversation, predominantly. You know, that's probably great advice no matter who you're pitching, isn't it? It's true. Yeah, I know. I know that wasn't. I know that yeah, wasn't but, like the but, best advice ever. No, no. Uh, but but listen, it, it might be though. You think about how many times any one of us have been off put when we met someone new, and it becomes completely obvious that they're in it for them, and their main point of talking to us is to make our money theirs, right? Mm-hmm. And there's that lack of reciprocation of they desperately want us to care about them and their problems and the way they say the world. And they appear to have virtually no interest in, in us and our problems and the way we see the world. That is just, mm-hmm. it sounds so basic. And yet, you know, our, our, our other firm, our consulting firm, Mylan, does a lot of training for sales reps at, at uh, you know, big $16 billion bank and a billion dollar real estate fund and some, some other, uh, you know, in the, in the building industry, some of, these, some of these reps sell one of our, our clients in the building industry. Uh, selling building materials. One of his employees Mm -hmm. in this division makes just $30 million a year in sales. And the other ones average about 2 million a year in sales. And the the ones lower down are doing about 800,000 in sales. And I promise you that the guys selling 30 million instead of 1 million or 2 million, they're doing what you talk about of they're actually connecting at a deeper level instead of just going for the throat, going for the sale, right? Yeah. So there's this there's this book that actually Lindsay recommended. So another big another shout out to Lindsay. Um, Lindsay Hadley, founder book. of Hadley Impact Consulting. Yeah, Lindsay Hadley. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So she recommended I read this book because that's why I, I work with Lindsay so much because her values are the same as mine. And we had these great conversations, and so we were talking about this, and I was struggling to articulate a little bit, kind of what I wanted to do with this next gen advisory work that I do. And she was like, she recommended this book. It's called Start With a Why by Simon Sinek. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what you were, you were talking about. Um, it's about those values, but it doesn't just come to your clients. It's also, it's also about who you're working with, so your employees. And what this guy talks about in his book is that why do we buy Apple, for example? Why do we buy Apple products? Why don't we buy um, HP or one of the other, or Samsung? It's because you connect with their values, because you understand their why. You understand that they want to change the world, and you want to be part of that mission, even if their technology perhaps is not as great as someone else's. So, and it's the same with your advisors, or it's the same with the CEOs. Why do you buy Patagonia? Why do you not want to buy Primark? Because their values are not the same, because you understand where Patagonia is coming with their why. Same with the advisors and the CEOs. If you understand where the CEOs are coming, if it's not just about the top line or the bottom line revenue, but it's more about what they're aiming to do with their business, I think you're more inclined to work with them. You're more inclined to buy their products. Um, you're more inclined to, to consume. And I think so. I think it's, I know it sounds really intangible or maybe a bit fluffy, but for me, that's the most important. Understand the why, and then it's, you're more authentic. And that's where trust comes. And I think that's what the current problem is. So, 
my theory of change is all about increasing trust and empathy in the system and the impact investing or in the investing system in general. And it comes from this notion of values because if you have the same values then you think that that person is authentic have you ever had those conversations with someone where you where you were just vibing off each other where you were just like (laughs) finishing each other's sentences you know that's because your values were the same and the conversation just flows so beautifully you know (laughs) i will say that's what i think it is with ceos and investors you know what's funny about that it's funny you bring that up because i'm thinking like so we've got a there's a guy on our team who ended up um, becoming, we, we ended up hiring him as the CEO of Child Rescue. He runs our charity now. Mm-hmm. And he had been in Navy, Naval Special Warfare, driving the boats, driving the Navy SEALs around. Ended up getting out, starting a business, uh, decided he hadn't served his country enough, went back in and made it to, uh, he actually went to the Army, went to the most elite counterterrorism unit in the world. And mm-hmm. uh, retired out of that a couple of years ago and, and just had a really... Um, had a really tough time in some of the work he'd done training some folks in Thailand and other things during his career with the military and seeing what was happening to children and not not being allowed to help with that because, you know, he's got certain mm-hmm. restrictions about what he was allowed to help with, right? And he did this just all he wanted to do. But in our conversation, by the end of it, our very first conversation, we got introduced by a mutual friend, a uh, army sniper guy. And by the end of it, he goes, Hey, he's quoting the Will Ferrell movie, Step Brothers. He's like, did we just become best friends? You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're laughing about it. And we've been working together ever since, you know. And it is funny how I think about raising, you know, like our, our first little uh, investment fund that we did in Canada. My partners and I raised like $27 million, right? And I, and mm-hmm. I, think, um, I think about the investor that gave us like $8 million. And... It was this. Um, it was this thing where he knew we were going to go the extra mile to help him with his constituents, with his where he was. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a. It was an investment from a fund, right? And yeah, he knew that we were going to go the extra mile for him and to um, help him get his job done in a non-transactional way. And mm-hmm. you know, it, it started off. Our first meeting was for a hundred grand, and. And over the course of the next few months, he ended up putting eight million with us. You know, he just kept re-upping and re-upping. And it wasn't because my math got any better. It wasn't because our projects got any better. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. That's exa- and it's the same. It's the same with everything I do. So I'm very values-driven. Like if I believe in something, I want to make it make it work. So it was the same with the with the mental health initiatives I did. Alicia spoke my language. She she said exactly what it was that I was looking for. My advisor spoke my language. Um, the people I'm surrounding myself, they speak my language. And so then I'm, I'm, I'm less fussed about the cost and more interested in just working with them because I think that's, you know, because I trust them essentially. Um, and someone once said this to me, and I think it's a perfect example. You, if you have kids, right, Jess? You have yeah, kids. I, I have four. Right. So when you go traveling and you need a babysitter, you don't want to necessarily just go for the companies that are out <laughs> yeah, there. Not, price, price is not the you sole know? consideration in that decision. Exactly. Right. So you ask your friends, do you have a recommendation? So it works on that because you want it to be authentic. And if it goes on, on by price, then that's more, I find it's more manipulation. And that links to my point about mental health and lack of trust. Because if, if you haven't, got, if you don't understand why a company is doing something and buying a product or getting a babysitter for your kids, because you understand why they're doing it and because you trust them, then it comes down to like price wars or manipulation. And that's what I think that next gen, so like millennials don't want. 
we're not interested in that kind of model anymore. It made sense post-war when there wasn't enough financial capital around and we had to all kind of sacrifice or previous generation had to sacrifice to make that financial capital. But I think now financial capital is in abundance. What's not in abundance is kind of the human, the social, the economic. That's what we have to build well, up and that's what next gen okay. wants to do. I'm so excited you brought this up because I feel like this is a natural transition to impact investing. I'm thinking about, again, I feel like, three quarters of my life as people that Lindsay Hadley introduced me to. Right. But, um, mm -hmm. I was doing a podcast series last year with, um, with, uh, uh Brendan Doherty, who is the founder of the Forbes impact. Uh, I met him recently, do you know Brendan? actually. That's yeah, so Brendan's funny. So great, right? I do. I met him at the UN general assembly. And so I'm just thinking about like, um, you know, he, he, I feel like you guys have a lot in common where he's, he's basically working really hard to make it cool to do impact investing and realizing like you don't have to do good or pay for your retirement. You can do both at the same time. And like how he's getting pop culture people involved. It's not just like the suits, you know, from the typical finance companies you would expect. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I know again, we're, we're closing in on time here for the episode, but um, can you tell us a couple of the impact investments that you've been most interested in or that you've invested in and, and just tell us the story of one or two of those. Yeah. Um, so I've been doing this for a while now, so I've got quite a few investments in, in my portfolio. But one of my favorite, for example, it's not just like impact investing, I think it's become a bit of a buzzword right now. Mm -hmm. And it's not rocket science. It, re it really isn't. Like investing is about supply and demand. And I think at the moment, so for example, one of my investments, and the reason I'm saying this is because one of my investments is in a food tech company called Five Seasons. Um, and food is, for me, food supplies is one of my one of the areas I'm most interested in is also because I understand it the most and it has so much overlap on climate, on gender, on mental health, on whatever have you. And so that's one of my, one of my priorities. And this five season fund I got in, I got involved was because we're going to have a problem. We're maxed out on terms of land mass capacity and being able to use it. So much of, of the, you know, farming monoculture, monoculture, um, uh, system is so bad for the environment. The food quality is so bad. We have an obesity problem, a, di a diabetes problem, um, and so we're going to have to do something about that. So I met these the founders. It's um, it's a venture capital food tech fund in in Europe, and we were speaking about it, and it just got my interest right away because they were looking at things outside the box. They were looking at um, so, for example, you're interested in, in in sports. You were a snowboarder. One of the things they're looking at is fuel repl uh, meal replacement. Um, drinks or, or products, but that were healthy and they have that catered for sports people because it's not just a question of like having a smoothie or a juice because that's maybe not what you need. It's looking at how, how, to, optim how to make your performance as optimal as possible through these meal replacements. Or they look at um, um, like gelato that doesn't melt so quickly so it lasts longer so you don't have to refrigerate it in the same way so you don't have to uh, make your transport system completely uh, iced up. Is that how you say it? Mm. Um, or refrigerated, which is which is better for the for the climate because it's less heavy. You're not having to use as much ice. So those was one of my favorite investments. My other really favorite investment in the food topic is in a company called Milk Lane. So what it does is it provides very high quality. Say, say that milk, one more time. Milk um, Milk Lane, like L A N E. Milk. Yep, Milk Lane. It's a company in India. Okay. Um, and they are, they are looking at because in India food is quite is a political topic. It's highly politicized because it's subsidized, and particularly the dairy industry, given the religious aspects of it, is also a a question mm -hmm. there. So, 
So milk, the milk industry in India is completely different. What they do is it's not, you don't really go to supermarkets to buy it. So you've literally got these farmers that have one or two cows and they milk them every day and they take their, their pails and they deliver the milk to the to, to households directly. So it's often women that have that do that or children that get roped into it. So this company, what they're doing is they're creating these bulk cooler um, systems, which is a, an area where you can where they can aggregate the two or three liters that each farmer has. So the farmer, instead of having to carry his few liters to each household, they can go to these bulk cooler systems and they can put it into a big bag. It gets tested for quality. And if it passes the quality test, they get instantly paid via mobile banking, which often they don't get paid if they're doing this kind of uh, individual distribution system. Um, And then they get paid immediately. And it's not the children. The children can go to school because it's not them that have to carry the milk from house to house. The women don't have to do it either. And then the bulk cooling systems also provide cattle feed so the cattle get fed better so that the, their milk is better has better quality and they also provide veterinary services so they they don't have so much disease during the lean season and they also provide low microfinance so, uh, so let, yeah so let's talk about that low into the farmers. let's talk about this for one minute so um when you think about how many ceos have some great idea that's going to change the world they they claim and they they've got a lot of passion but then it comes down to you trying to be a wise steward of your of your capital and getting to that place of thinking, you know, like passion is great, but we also need a level of competence and there needs to be, you know, mm-hmm. there needs to be a reality aspect to the vision. When you, mm-hmm. for, for a milk lane there, when it came down to you deciding, yes, I think these people can actually deliver on their good intentions. What, what was that like? Or, you know, you've, you've got all the, you've got all the, things you just told us, which are great if somebody can execute, which Mm -hmm. is a pretty big if in a lot of cases, right? So for you, thinking about that one, what, you know, there's obviously the, the heart reasons of, of the aligning with your values and all this aspect. And then there is maybe this other side of the competence, you know, of, are they really checking the box of, um, you know, making sure you're not just blowing money out into the wind, right? How did you how mm-hmm. did you get there for for let's take milk lane for instance how did you get to the place of of feeling that the competence level was there right and it's a really good question because there's this whole myth about how like impact investing you sacrifice financial returns for impact I I absolutely do not so my impact investing when I look at um, an inv- a potential investment it has to measure up to the financial return that I want in the equivalent asset class. If that's not an impact investing, so it really starts from the strategic asset allocation. So I really look at kind of how much I want in private equity, how much I want in private debt, and real estate and cash. It really starts at that level, and then you break it down granularly. Um, so I'm not a lot of next gens when they or a lot of millennials when they look at um, doing an investment, they pick a sector that they like. I'm sector agnostic. I just happen to pick food twice because those that's the one I understand the most, and it's the thing I'm most passionate about. But it comes down to um, the competence of the team as well, like you say. So my advisors are really strict on that. We do site visits, we meet the team, we do reference checks. So when I invested in the Milk Lane, one of my advisors had actually invested in one of his one of their previous uh, companies, also based in India. So she had experience from there. I also made a number of reference checks, and one of my advisors is actually on the board of Milk Lane um, to represent my my vote on that. So that's also how you 
uh, keep a little bit of checks and balances. We went to India. We went to have a look at um, these bulk coolers. We went to see how it works in practice. And things like working in the milk industry in India is not easy. So one of the important things for us was how do you guarantee revenue? So they had this offtake agreement with Schroeder's. And that was one of the ways that they were actually going to be able to uh, ensure that we had the that the that the budget would be fulfilled. So the financial um, indicators are just as important as the impact ones, and we spend a lot of time working on that as well and meeting them. And as I said, reference checks and due diligence. We go into the data rooms, we speak to them, we ask all the questions that need to be asked. We ask if they've had experience with default or liquidation or whatever the the issue is in that particular investment. Did that did, did that make sense? Yeah, I, I think that uh, one of the things that I was really happy to hear about that is the site visits, you know, like you can get such a sense from people, but I mean, we've all hired employees that interviewed great. And then when it came to the day to day, they did, they didn't live up to the interview skills. Right. Um, mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. idea of not just taking people's word for it, not just looking at the Excel spreadsheet, but going and getting that like uh, on site in person evaluation to kind of, add the context to everything you've read and, and heard about it so far. Um, it's interesting to me how often that is not done. Do you think it's my natural laziness? Why do you think that I have not done that sometimes? What do you think people's <laughs> resistance is to, to taking the time to go that extra mile? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I couldn't, I couldn't say. Um, but I remember once having a conversation with you about, um, uh, when we were like talking, when we were first meeting, you once told me about women in finance. And remember, we were had this discussion about how you feel, uh, how you how you think that women, and I would 100% agree with this. So one of the reasons I spend so much time doing these site visits and meeting these people is because I don't have a finance background. And there's something about women in finance that often they think that they don't understand it or don't know it if they don't have a finance background. You know, it's this kind of bias that we have in our heads. Oh, we're women. We're not good with numbers. But actually. Those spreadsheets, those 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 forecasts, those P and Ls, they can only be as good as the people behind them. And I tell you mm. what, I get so many decks across. They get so I get so many decks across uh, across my desk that I have to look at. It's like what numbers always look good. You're always going to see an upward trajectory. <laughs> and so, right? And so then at year seven, we think we're going to go bankrupt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which I mean, then you won't, you don't even get to the to meeting the management stage. But for me, meeting the management is really important because it's like. Where are these numbers coming from? They can only be good as the people behind them. What is their logic for putting this? What do they think is, is, is you know, the biggest challenges, the biggest opportunities? And for me, speaking to them and making this side visit is important too because if someone says to me, oh, there are no, there are no challenges. It's all going to be plain sailing. Well, I, I, I'm saying my reaction is either you're BSing me or you don't know your competitive landscape or you don't know your investment horizon. So I wouldn't invest with you either way. So... I think mine came more originally from kind of a, oh, I'm not sure I'm qualified to be an investor. So I just want to double check that the people who I'm investing with will, will be good custodians of my funds. So that's, I think, my, my motivation for doing it. And I just feel a bit more secure because, as I said, investing is a people business. It's not actually, like, as I said, the numbers always look good. So it's down to if they can execute. And so I want to be able to understand that. And I also want to understand the environment. So I do a lot of, I invest globally. So I'm going at the end of November, I'm going to Nairobi for three, four days just to get a feel for the place, just to get a feel for what the landscape is because I haven't been there in 10 years. And so I'm looking at more and more investments and more and more funds in 
African continent. And a lot of them tend to be, you know, Nairobi is quite often a, a hub for where a lot of funds are based from which to um, uh, sell products or services. So since I'm looking at a lot of funds that are currently in that area, I want to go down and get a feel for what is it that the people need? What is it? What is the what is the market like generally? What is what are the social problems? What are the environmental problems? Who are the people that are actually executing this transaction? And I think without having that feel, it's very difficult to identify what what what, what the good opportunities are, what the niche is. And me personally, I just I'm a people person and I like meeting people. And so that's my motivation for doing it. So I don't know why yeah. other people don't, but I tell you, it's really good fun. Well, you know that kind of humility. I see as a competitive advantage. You know, I've been, um, I, I read a lot of finance books, um, specifically about the people who've built larger organizations. So my favorites this year have been Howard Marks. I don't know if you know Oak Tree Capital, but they just sold to Brookfield and they're, you know, one of the most well-respected players in the debt space. They basically took Warren Buffett's principles and applied them to the debt world. And then Brookfield, who mm-hmm. they've now been bought by, took Warren Buffett's principles and applied them to the real estate and, uh, infrastructure world clean energy stuff like that Mm -hmm. and um it is interesting how often they talk about well as soon as you're managing enough billions there's so many temptations to think you know it all you've you're so smart you've got you've got it all handled and that that's typically the start of the decline and that you know these guys who the business media looks up to and from a financial perspective have have reached the top of the game and their advice is actually just like yours all the time of uh, well, double check, you know, let's double check. Let, what if we entered this assuming we don't know what we're doing instead of assuming we know everything. And mm-hmm. it, it's interesting that the most successful folks uh, mirror that same philosophy you're talking about. So that's great. Yes. Well, it's also like, if you ask, if you ask children, like what, 50 years ago, what did it, what they wanted to be when they grew up? Most of the time it would be like, well, an astronaut or a pilot or whatever. If you ask people nowadays, like I want to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I don't even know how you become an entrepreneur. You know, it's hard work. It's putting the hours in. It's being humble. It's kind of stumbling into it. I don't think any entrepreneur kind of set out to be an entrepreneur. They came from a much more, I would like to think, a much more uh, humble perspective. It's like they identified the opportunities and they worked for it. They, they slaved away. They put the hours in, you know, and they did the work. And that's how it came. That's how they got their success, in my opinion. And it's the same if you speak to Warren Buffett or you speak to some of the investment gurus of this world. They all, they're now much talk, talking a lot more about passive investment rather than having an active manager, because actually you can do just as well with a passive, um, a passive tracker or an ETF in terms of returns. So you know what is it that you need the the connection for the personal connection because you want that kind of competence and trust and yeah. I love it. Well. Um... As far as the best place for people to reach out to, to learn more about what you're doing, both on the impacting side and the charitable work you're doing, uh, there's natashamuller.com and the Mueller has the umlaut above the U. Is that how you say it? Umlaut? Mm-hmm. Umlaut? How, do you, how are you supposed to say that? Yeah, umlaut. Umlaut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. The umlaut. And then uh, are, are LinkedIn and Twitter probably the, the next best places? Yeah. Yeah, and Instagram as well. Yes, I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm less active on Twitter because, yeah, I I can't manage it all. But LinkedIn I'm in on on as well, and yeah. That's great. Well, thanks for doing this. This has been great. Thank you so much, Jess. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. You bet.